tonight on Arena. Carlo Gebler and Enrico Ferrara on this year's Festival of Italian and Irish Literature and Martina Evans on her long narrative poem, The Coming Thing. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. The Italian Cultural Institute is hosting a festival of Italian and Irish literature this coming weekend. One of the panel discussions that caught our eyes was crossing over family and identity with a panel from countries taking part. It's moderated by Enrica Ferrara and one of the speakers is author Carlo Gabler. I'm delighted to have both of them with me in studio this evening. It's quite an interesting theme, crossing over family and identity, Italian and Irish. Can you get away from family really when you come, when we talk about Not both of those countries, Enrica? <laughs> exactly. So this is one of the reasons why we decided to have one of the first, but in fact, it's the first panel, the second panel of Friday, 29th of September. Mm. Um, the idea that uh, identity is built in dialogue with other people. And uh, the first people that you actually build your identity in dialogue with um, is your parents and your siblings. And um, yes, in countries like Italy and Ireland, of course, you know, like family is prominent. And uh, there's so many memoirs that are written and autobiographical novels. They're so um, poignant and interesting. And um, so we have a few uh, authors like Carlo Gabler, who's here uh, with us tonight. And also we have Olivia Fitzsimons, who wrote a beautiful novel, um, The Quiet Whispers Never Stop. And then we have another Italian author. We have an Italian author called Maria Grazia Calandrone, who um, uh, wrote a beautiful memoir, Dove non mi hai portata. Not, still not translated in English. So uh, roughly, how would that translate if you had to put a, 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 a title on it? Where uh, the place where you haven't uh, taken me. And the place where you haven't taken me um, is um, a river where her mother committed suicide and she drowned herself um, after leaving the baby in Villa Borghese in Rome in 1965. So the baby was abandoned and her mother and her father proceeded to walk into the river Tiber and uh, drown themselves. So like it's a very sad, mm. uh, very sad story. It, it reads like a, a noir, really like a crime novel, but it is unfortunately very true. Um it is uh, the story of two adulterous, you know, like an adulterous couple. And at the time, the law prohibited, mm. you know, like it was uh, went down very, very heavily on people uh, committing uh, adultery. So, um, um, so the two, um, the, so the mother and father of Maria Grazia escaped, you know, like ran away from the little village where they lived in the south of Italy to Milan, and they gave, and and, uh, and and the mother gave birth to the baby, but they couldn't provide for her. So um, they left her in Villa Borghese in Rome, in the middle of, uh, you know, like outdoor in plain air. And uh, what they did was they didn't leave a message or a little uh, piece of paper saying what her name was. They proceeded to send a letter to the communist newspaper, L'Unita, um, identifying the baby and saying the reason why they had left her wow. there. Um, the reason why is because the communist newspaper wouldn't have um, condemned uh, the couple, um, yeah. Right. Extra- extraordinary story. Mm. Proving, Carlo, if ever we needed it to be proven yet again, that um, truth is stranger than fiction. It is. It is stranger than fiction. It's also very... Um, it's it's truculent. It's got awkward corners. It's not neat and tidy. 
one of the things when you, when, when you write a novel, you're in. I mean, a novel is a collection of facts. You're in control of all the facts. You can have any facts you, you want. Can make them up if you need to. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you can sort of sand and burnish, and you can engineer it and fit everything into into you know. You can turn it into this lovely mm. machinery that mm. sort of keeps perfect time and is gloss is perfect. Non-fiction, particularly memoir, of course, you're not allowed to do that. I mean, a memoir is an account of what you think has happened. It may not be exactly the truth, but you can't make it up. You can't alter, you can't change the tone. But it's also always incredibly through other. It's, 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 it's complex and it's, it isn't easy material to mould yeah. into something that is, that is you know, that goes down like a kind of glass of champagne. It's- yeah, and, and I guess um, the, the other aspect is, particularly in memoir, you're writing about some aspect of yourself and in terms of this panel discussion crossing over family and identity, you're particularly writing about the familial part of yourself. So you're hardly... Um, objective in in these matters. One, you're not objective, but I think people will be prepared to accept. But two, you're also dealing with incredibly complex expositionary information, genealogical information. Mm. Who's who? How are they connected? When are they born? What is their context? What is the history? What made them what they are? And in the case of the, the books that I'm going to be talking about, which are the ones that I wrote... Rather mm-hmm. than I and the projectionist, there's also an awful lot of moving around. Yeah, well, you know, let, let's let's start with father and I, um, which was the, it's the story of you and your father. Obviously, there are others involved in that story. Tell us about him and what story you wanted to explore in that memoir. I wanted to explore the experience of myself as a child and an adolescent encountering this strange distant, largely silent, often gloomy, saturnine figure who was not like any of the other fathers that I came across in my everyday experience. So this was a man who would say things like, hmm, well, Catholics have a picture (laughs) of our Lord. Well, do you know who it ought to be that we have in our houses? Stalin. Stalin saved us from fascism. Oh, so this is unusual. Mm. Not, not, not a, not a. Fathers didn't habitually say things like that. A provocative statement, do you think, uh, or not? At first, I didn't understand, and then later, as I came mm. to understand who Stalin was, read Isaac Deutscher, began to think, oh, yeah. Stalin, really not such a good guy. And it was also, it always then came attached with a kind of long spiel about the Poles, the self-pity of right, the Poles, so there was all always of those gurning things. and complaining. So what if Stalin invaded? He had to do it in order to keep the there, Germans happy. There is an added um, layer of difficulty in your own particular case because you as a writer were writing from underneath your father, Ernest Gebler, a writer, your mother, Edna O'Brien, mm. a writer. What layers of difficulty does that add or did that or continue to add into the equation? It's interesting. I was talking, Enrica was asking me about the values that I acquired in the home. You know, mm. the kind of things that you acquire osmotically. And from my parents, there was this incredible emphasis placed on simplicity, lucidity, things being comprehensible and approachable. And whatever it was you did, you had to ensure it was 
clean and straight and approachable. So that is the place from which I started when dealing with these really complicated things. Had to kind of sieve the material and, and just keep the things that were shiny and bright and then arrange them into a nice order. Shiny and bright things, but you know, we we also want to read the muddy, murky, dirty oh, stuff as well. Yes, I, have you hidden all of that? No, uh, no, or no. is it yet when, to come? No, when I say shiny and bright, what I mean is is that they have narrative exactitude. Mm. They may not be, be shiny and bright yes. in the sense of being pleasing or alluring mm. or comforting. Most of the content in these books is discomforting. And how difficult is that to write? How was that to write? Not difficult at all. Why not? No, that sounds extraordinary. Why not? Because, well, the, the first uh, one, I'd had several years of psychoanalysis in which I'd bored the gentleman to death talking about these things. But the process of psychoanalysis had made me realise that there was this vast warehouse of little glass files and I just would unstop one after the next and I'd be suffused with memories and language and detail. It was all confused. Mm. I simply, in the writing, had to reorganise it into something that was chronological and recondite. I, I think it's towards the end of uh, Father and I that you write, you can't change the past with understanding. You can sometimes draw the poison out of it. Yes. Was it the writing that drew the poison out of that situation or did the psychoanalysis, was that part of drawing the poison out too? Not the writing, the organising, the getting it straight. Because when you are in your memory, in your head, you remember something, it then associatively mm. triggers a memory of something else and you don't have the connectivity. Mm. But when you, when you organise it and you get it so that it's like a line of dominoes and the first domino knocks the second, knocks the third, and then you have forward momentum and it's liberating to get it straight. Well, ordered. And do you think that, again, it comes back, I will, maybe I'll come back to you on the objectivity or not of that, because it comes across again, I suppose, if we talk about Olivia Fitzsimmons' book, mm. she's part of the panel as well. Is she there yes, as well as the Italian yes, writer? So definitely. we'll have Carlo and the two, an Italian and, writer. Olivia Fitzsimmons is Irish um, and uh, Maria, Maria Grazia Calandrona is yes, the Italian is, is writer. Italian. So yes. tell us about Olivia's book and what she's treating in there. Yes, Olivia's book, uh, well, it's a beautiful story about uh, a mother and a daughter. And I'm fascinated with that because I'm fascinated with the stories about the mother-daughter bond. You know that I research Helena Ferrante. And so this is uh, one of the main theme and mm. trope. And, and uh, Olivia Fitzsimons has uh, um, uh, the story about a mother, Nula, who essentially disappears. Yeah, so she disappears. Now, we know at the very beginning of the book, she disappears. She leaves behind two children. And many, many years later, um, well, I suppose like the, the daughter is... Um, is is 17 and we find Sam, who's the daughter, um, trying to kind of um, come to grip with the disappearance of her mother and her own identity. And uh, in searching um, her mother's identity, she finds her own or she, she's hoping to find her own. But the problem with Sam is that she actually doesn't have any memories of the mother. Mm. So and I find that fascinating, you know, this lack of this absence of memory, because I think Carlo says it too, that we actually feel the gaps in our memories. I think you say it in Father and I, you know, like how we have to fill the gaps in our memory uh, with um, stories that 
they're not invented, but they are, you know, like whatever it is um, closer to the truth that we can actually manage. And they're not necessarily, it doesn't really matter if they're true or not, because like it is our own recollection of the past. Um, but in the story of um, Nula and Sam, um, what is very, very interesting is that Nula, from the point of view of the mother, um, who's Nula, who disappears, mm. she feels um, uh, a sense of uh, endearment, of course, and connection with her own children, but also um, a terrible sense of rejection and distance. You know, like, and these kind of feelings are feelings that we uh, find very are hard to acknowledge, but they are actually there from mm. the perspective of the parent and from the perspective of the children. We usually think about children having this feeling of rejection towards their parents and having to find themselves. They have to reject their parents to find their own identity. But parents have the same towards their children. And I also learned that in Father and I. Yeah, and, and after yeah. Father and I, Carlo, having, having given us that memoir, which is basically your point of view, you, went, you, you took on a very gutsy project, one could argue, to then be the biographer mm. for your your, your father, mm. uh, what became the projectionist. Mm. Was that a more objective or was it easier to be more objective in that exercise? When um, my father um, had what we thought was Alzheimer's and um, I was told to um, put him in a home and uh, clear the house and sell it. He lived in Torquay. And I knew that in this house, which was like the lair of Howard Hughes, full of paper. He hadn't thrown away anything for a very long time. I mean, decades. Mm. Um, I, knew were, I knew in this house were the Let's Diaries that were there on the shelf when I was a child. And it, the Let's Diaries had, you know, when I had my diphtheria inoculation and all sorts of calendrical information. I thought, I've got to get those Let's Diaries. So first thing I do when I get the key to the house to go in and clear it with my wife and the kids is I go to the study to get the Let's Diaries. And I see two tea chests and written on the side of the tea chests are autobiog one, autobiog two. I thought, what? I look in and I see there's, I mean, thousands. Mm. They were full. You know how big a tea chest is? Yeah. With stuff. He'd been trying to write his autobiography in the years preceding the Alzheimer's and failing and returning and correcting and forgetting and remembering. It was very confused, but it was gold because nothing that he'd written down, did I know anything about? I was going to ask you what, Nothing. what particularly did you, I, I think the presence of a half-brother was probably, was that the biggest surprise? No, I vaguely knew about that, but for well, explain instance, what that was. Well, he'd been married to Leatrice, um, a woman called Leatrice Gilbert, who was John Gilbert, the silent movie star's daughter, and had had a son. So I did know vaguely. Did you know that he was called Carl? Yes, I did know that, but I knew... Nothing about the Leatrice marriage, the circumstances. Not only did I know nothing about that, I knew nothing about. For instance, my father was taken by... My, my, my grandfather's family left Ireland and went to Wolverhampton, where they went bankrupt. And with the collapse of the silent cinema, my grandfather was a pianist in a silent cinema in Wolverhampton. So they all come back, my grandfather hoping to work for the... Uh, Symphony Orchestra, the, mm. what became the RT Symphony Orchestra, but they left my father behind. I didn't know that. They left him in Walsall as a cinema apprentice, as the as an apprentice mm. in a cinema for years. 
Did that increase empathy or sympathy towards him or what feelings did it give That you? was really revelatory. What was also revelatory, I knew that my grandfather had been uh, arrested in July 1914 as an Austro-Hungarian enemy alien and he didn't return home until uh, August 1919, so nearly five years. No, more than five years. Mm. But what I found in the diary, in the autobiography, was that his being away in, ca- in the camp, hard labour camp, was, according to my father, the worst thing that had ever happened to him. His relationship with his father, he was born after his father was arrested by a Dublin Metropolitan policeman. His relationship was, was, was non-existent. Mm-hmm. When, when Adolf came back, he was, it was like my Oedipus complex. You know, it was the guy returning from the wars as a POW who was uncouth, who couldn't cope, who didn't know how to use money, and they... Yeah. instantly hated each other and that contaminated the relationship for the rest of their lives. Uh, what did, how did that knowledge affect your relationship with your father? Well, I suddenly felt very sorry for him because I suddenly realised that there was this gigantic trauma which had been occasioned by the forces of history. Adolf, my grandfather, came mm. to Ireland to escape German militarism. He was a Czech nationalist he, had nothing, he didn't want to... His brother was on the, in the French army in, on the Western Front. He was no more an enemy alien seeking to undo the British Empire than he was a cuckoo. Mm. But they, didn't, they weren't interested in those details. They just put him in the camp. And now you have this and you find this information often and it's all in there in the projections. Yes. You find this information in the material that you went through in your father's material, your father's belongings after he, 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 he had died at this point. I don't know. He was ill. I didn't he was Ill. go through them until after he yeah. died. Did you discuss it with other members of the family, with, with Sasha, your, your brother, your brother with uh, Edna O'Brien's son? Did you discuss it with Edna herself, cer- your mother? Did you discuss c- it with your half-brother? I certainly... Um, did I? No. I didn't discuss it with my half-brother. He is an American and um, I think prefers to live in the present tense. Mm. Um, I mentioned it to my brother... Who f- and to my mother, I think both of them found the material, the, the the stuff that was coming up, complex and. So your mother had no knowledge of it until you told her. No, well, she probably knew. Well, one of the things that she did know about was much much later my grandfather Adolf being accused of murder. He was accused of having murdered his wife, and it was my mother, who was helping him to look after that woman. Uh, He didn't murder her, by the way. Um, He was exonerated. Um, So my mother knew about that. That was a very difficult period. And he was so appalled the Irish state were going to deport him back to the Czechoslovakian Republic, he he hoofed it off to America. Having lived in Ireland for 50 years, he was so appalled at what they were going at, at the turn. So that she knew about, but lots and lots of the childhood stuff, no, she didn't know about. It, it's, it come, brings me back to my um, early st- earlier statement, Enrique. Mm. The truth is so much stranger than fiction. Absolutely, yes. You know, like I think um, we can say that we were discussing uh, in uh, coming here fairy tales. You know, like there is so much, for example, in fairy tales that mm. is uh, real. You know, like monsters in fairy tales are real. You know, like we we're going to discuss that the following day um, with Carla Lucarelli and uh, Mark O'Connell. 
Um, but uh, yes, no, I I think you're absolutely right. You know, like and and there is this. Uh, um, blurred lines, you know, like as you say, mm. you know, blurred lines between um, uh, between uh, the uh, reality and fiction. Um, uh, it comes to mind, you know, like another beautiful story. I don't think we have touched on that that has been published here this year. Um, the House in Via Gemito. Um, the House in Via Gemito by Domenico Sarnone, translated by Una Stransky. I was uh, um, struck by the um, having to. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, noticing that uh, Via Gemito was uh, that proceeded to win the Strega Prize, one of the most coveted prizes in Italian uh, literature, was published in the same year of uh, Father and I. And both uh, these stories deal with uh, um, a son and uh, an artist's father, you know, like how to, mm. um, you know, square that relationship and the difficulties of that relationship. And I think, you know, both... Uh, both stories and the fact that they came out in the same year, I kind of wondered myself, did anything happen <laughs> yeah. that year? You know, like that's prompted yeah. these two writers, uh, same age, to write, mm. uh, you know, like a story about similar matters. Yeah. Just one thing, uh, Carlo was worth a documentary or of a series of documentaries, Great Radio says the text just in. One final question, if I could, Carlo. When you read your mother's memoir, uh, A Country Girl, was there anything in there that you said, that's not, that's not what I remember? Or... That's told me something I never knew. No, I, no. There wasn't anything. It, it, the, the thing is, is, is every memoir is partial. I mean, the way to think mm. of it is, it's like the person in the pillbox looking through the slit and they just tell you what's in front of the slit. That's what they saw. And that's what that book does. That's what all of these books do. But I'm in a different pillbox, yeah. right? I've okay. got a different vision. I can hear different sounds. I have a different view of the beach. So there are all sorts of – I mean, one of the things that the book didn't really address, but then how could it address, is what a Stakhanovite she was. You know who Stakhanov, the Soviet wonder that. worker. I mean, the, the work, the industry, just what it is to exist on Grub Street. You know, it requires Johnsonian zeal. And that, she – that really wasn't in there. But then, of course, how could it be? Because it's really not advisable to blow one's own trumpet. And I suppose it's... she wasn't looking through the slit box at herself no, doing that. No, no, no. Yeah. So, that yeah. so that's a very, very good example. And one final thing I'd say, I was liberated and encouraged to write Father and I by reading Johnson, Samuel Johnson, Life of Richard Savage and all his mini biographies. I suddenly thought, yes, the biography. There I, you I'll go. have a go. That's 20 minutes of a discussion and I'm dying to find out more. And I've only got two of you here when you've got the other two in the equation. How much more information will there be to discuss and uh, to interact between all of you? Carol Gebler and Enrico Ferrado, thank you so much for coming into us. And the Festival of Italian and Irish Literature takes place um, from the 29th to the 30th of September. And Carlo and Enrico's event, along with the others that are involved, they're crossing over family and uh, and, and and identity, that's the one, yes, is at between 6 and 7.30 on Friday the 29th of September. Thank you both so much.
This Friday at University Concert Hall Limerick and Saturday at the National Concert Hall internationally renowned conductor Joshua Gershon will conduct the RTE Concert Orchestra in an evening of Beethoven celebrating the composer who overcame crippling depression and deafness to give some of, give us some of the most exhilarating and memorable music from the 19th century. The programme features the Creatures of Prometheus Overture, Beethoven's Symphony No. 3, the so-called Eroica, and his Piano Concerto No. 3, which will be played by Irish pianist, virtuoso pianist John O'Connor. Delighted to be joined by Joshua Gershon in, in uh, studio this evening. So you're back to conduct the, the, the RTE Concert Orchestra, Joshua, and great to see you back here again. An all-Beethoven programme, I, I suppose one could argue, do you need anything else if you have Beethoven? Well, uh, certainly. Uh, and again, thanks for having me. It's great to be back here. Uh, yeah, you know, Beethoven is one of these uh, behemoth composers we have in our history. Uh, and especially the Eroka Symphony is such an important piece of music, such a turning point in the history of music uh, that, you know, music would never be the same again. Every composer that that followed him in some way, shape, or form was influenced by these works. So, so yes, I mean, uh, certainly there is an argument to be made for variety in, in some ways, but if we're going to do a program of one composer doing a, a, a program of Beethoven's Beethoven. music, it has a lot of significance. Yeah, it's not, it's not a bad idea. You say <laughs> about, you know, the Eroica Symphony changed things in, in so many ways, <laughs> particularly the odd number symphonies of Beethoven, one, three, five, seven, nine. They all did something extraordinary sure. in terms of changing the history of the symphony. You, again, you could argue that. What particularly about number three do you think is significant and how it pushed things along? Well, there's so many things, to be honest with you, Sean. And, uh, you know, I think first you have to understand sort of where Beethoven was in his life when mm. he wrote this symphony. Um, obviously, there are a lot of political things going on that were the inspiration for the work, but there's also a lot of personal struggle that he was really starting to deal with at this point in his life. He had just discovered he was going deaf and perhaps going to be deaf for the rest of his life and was really kind of coming to terms with that. And I think... Um, you know, a lot of that uh, sort of struggle, mm. um, he kind of decided, you know what, I'm forget what everybody else wants. I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, I'm going to, there are things that I've been wanting to try out and you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. So he really in the symphony pushed a lot of different boundaries, um, defied a lot of the conventions that uh, composers were supposed to be following up at this point and, and really made the symphony one of the most important genres for you know, instrumental music, which it really hadn't been before. And so he's pushing the boundaries in every way imaginable in this symphony. Let's listen to the beginning of the opening movement, and I'm guessing the first couple of bangs sure, <laughs> yes. that he gives us in that in this in this opening section. section there from the opening of the very first movement of the Symphony Number no. 3, the so-called Eroica Symphony of Ludwig van Beethoven and that was in a performance by the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra with Carlo Maria Giolini conducting. Joshua Gershon will be conducting the RT Concert Orchestra in a performance of that symphony on both Friday and, and Saturday night coming. The minute you heard it, Joshua, you went, that's a, that's a slow version. So you, you're going you're gonna to up the pace, are you? Uh, just a little bit. But uh, to each his own, I would say. In this, in <laughs> yes, regard, it's, it's perfectly acceptable. That's what <laughs> conducting is all about. But I suppose what strikes me is immediately the, 
they, they sit up and listen, demand that is made by those two opening boom, boom chords. He really, uh, you, you were saying he pulls no punches. Uh, absolutely. And, and of course, uh, the symphony in so many ways represents his, his own personal struggle, but it also was inspired um, by Napoleon. Uh, Beethoven was a huge fan initially of At Napoleon. At that time, yes. Um, yeah. You know, when he was starting to make his mark and, and upholding the ideals mm. of the French Revolution. And of course, as soon as he crowned himself emperor, that all turned. And uh, Beethoven initially had dedicated the symphony to him. And as soon as this happened, he famously struck out his name on the first page of the score so violently that he tore a hole in it. Um, so, But when the piece was written, of course, it was written with him in mind. And so I, I always interpreted this first movement really as a depiction of a battle, um, both the, the, you know, an actual battle and perhaps Beethoven's mm. own. Um, so those first two chords, I think, are absolutely cannon shots from the yeah, uh, campaigns. Yeah. yeah, and then you know, he I, I've let it play in to get that kind of the opening theme is expressed first, and it flies, it kind of makes its way down through the orchestra in beautifully in beautiful ways. But there's a section in the in the middle, uh, I think, uh, of that. Uh, uh, in the in the yes in the in the, in the min- middle of the second movement. I'm, sorry, I'm I'm confused here. What I'm looking at. <laughs> yes, the middle of the the second movement. I think is what we're about to. No, the middle. <laughs> let's have a listen, and you can tell me exactly what it is. Will do. <laughs> That is where the, where Beethoven. I, I love the way he he literally plays it down through the orchestra, or down through the strings of the orchestra. That is from the the first movement. Actually, yes. it is the middle of the first movement. And I think it's another great example of, of the sound effects that he's using throughout the piece. That to me, those those little figures to get up to get up. They're absolutely mm. supposed to be galloping horses in the cavalry on the charge, that kind of thing. So, and would you think of Beethoven as we might not always think of him as being that programmatic, but particularly in this symphony, is that style there where he's literally telling the story with the sound? I think a lot has been written on that subject, and and uh, some people think that it is absolutely a programmatic symphony telling a story. Others think it's more abstract, just sort of dealing with the ideals of heroism mm. and, and, and in many different ways. Like I said, in, the, in this first movement especially, there are so many obvious sound effects that I think he is certainly trying to depict very certain specific things. How useful, uh, you know, is that for the conductor to either choose, I'm going to go for the programmatic aspect of this or I'm going to look for something perhaps more nebulous, more difficult to, to define or do you just have to throw that all out and say, play the notes? It's a great question because I, I think it's something that we all, it's its part of our, our, our job to interpret these works. Mm. And of course, our goal is always as conductors to take the, the scores these composers left us and try and recreate them. We, our, our, our goal is to make the, the music sound as we believe the composer wanted it to. Um, but in, in a instance like this where we're not sure what Beethoven's intentions may have been, how specific or abstract or whatever. Yes, you have to make choices based on what you see and what you read and what you know and and try and do them in, in good faith, again, to try and depict what we think Beethoven in this instance wanted. The other um, task that you have, um, although it's not a task in many ways, is um, the conducting of the Piano Concerto Number no. 3 in C minor of Beethoven and John O'Connor will be the soloist here. Um, you are a 
more than qualified as a conductor yourself. You have lots of experience behind you. But somebody like John O'Connor, who comes to Beethoven with so much experience of playing the works uh, behind him and underneath his, his fingers. What's the role, what's the balance between conductor and soloist in that type of situation? I think in any situation, really, as a conductor, uh, when you're performing a concerto, uh, the orchestra is the accompaniment, mm. really, is the showcase is, is the soloist. I mean, in this case, um, the pianist and, and, and John. And so it really is our goal to do the, everything that we can to support the soloist, uh, perform the concerto in the best way uh, we can to help support and highlight, in this case, John. So um, much more in a, in a concerto setting, it's our job to be, you know, to do whatever the soloist wants. Mm. Um, it's really their interpretation of the piece. There are certain sections where the orchestra is playing on their own, and perhaps um, that's where a conductor can have to make some more interpretive choices. But again, it's really all based on what the soloist is mm. doing, what they want to do, and how that complements that. And in terms of, uh, I, when I think of Beethoven, that obviously there are the nine symphonies that we touched on when we were speaking about Eroica. There are five piano concertos and there are 32 piano sonatas. Now the yes. piano sonatas are just works for piano by themselves. Do you see a relationship between what Beethoven did with the sonatas? Again, works with which John, John O'Connor is very familiar and has recorded many times. I think he's recorded all of them at yes, some point yes. along the way. Um do you see relationships between the sonatas and what Beethoven does there and what he does in the concerti? Yes, certainly. And I, I think, obviously, we know that Beethoven himself was a pianist, mm. so he performed... He knew how to use this instrument. Right. He knew the instrument very well, and he performed a lot of his own music, especially early on in his life. Once he lost his hearing, that became a, a separate issue. But but uh, especially with these piano sonatas, they were, they were sort of early experiments. Um, a lot of the... We talked about, even in the Eroica Symphony, a lot of the um, conventions, uh, boundaries he was pushing, mm. he would he would experiment by trying to do a lot of these things first in his piano sonatas, I think, because he felt more comfortable in that medium, um, was a little more self-contained. And so a lot of the things that you see him do in the concerti um, and the symphonies later on, he was first trying with these sonatas to sort of see how, right. he, how, he, how they would work yeah. out. And then the things that he liked, he would then... He would then yeah. take them over and, and transfer them to the orchestra and the piano alongside exactly. the orchestra. He's very generous. He's very nice in the way he, he eases, the, <laughs> eases the soloist in, particularly in this third piano concerto. It yes. starts out with quite a big, quite a long section, really, from the orchestra, doesn't it? It does. And that was relatively traditional at the time. The orchestra would start with this sort of section, mm. giving an introduction to the soloist. But this concerto, it's a pretty long instrumental uh, introduction, mm. longer than you usually would see. Yeah, I um, think it's sure. close to maybe three or four minutes before I, I, before the piano comes in. I believe that's, in. that's right. But yeah. then the piano does come in and it comes in, I think I'm pretty much at the start of the piano entrance here. What I particularly love about that little section from the the first movement of uh, the of the piano concerto number three, and it's kind of into the middle of the first movement, Joshua Gerson, is that you hear the interplay between the piano and the uh, the orchestra. Beethoven really knew how to play the the two sides of the 
of what we're listening to off each other. Absolutely. He was sort of a master at orchestration. He was one, one of the first composers to really learn, I believe, how to use the orchestra to that great mm. effect. Um, and you hear it in a lot of these piano concertos, for sure, from the, the last three in particular, um, the way he, the, the interplay, the, the dialogue you hear from the pianist. The yeah, when you hear those long, slow chords from the from the orchestra and then the bouncing arpeggios from the, from the piano, it's really, it's that kind of contrast and to think that he was going deaf as all of that music yes. was going around in his head, it's quite extraordinary. I'm, I'm absolutely I'm struck with this concerto as well and that it's in the key of C minor, which is a very important key for Beethoven. And of course, it's a key he would use in his fifth symphony. The famous and, knock on the and door. And it has this, this very sort of turbulent... It's, yeah. Uh, he, this key had a real sort of mood um, that usually came out of him when he used it. And you hear a lot of the seeds for the Fifth Symphony, that turbulence in this concerto and the first movement in particular. Yeah. 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 Well, listen, it's, it sounds like a fascinating concert. Um, I guess you, you, you perform it in, in Limerick on the Friday night and then yes. in, in Dublin on the, on the Saturday night. It must be lovely to do it back to back like that, to be able to not not iron out mistakes. It wouldn't be it's not that straightforward, but maybe things that you've discovered on the Friday night that can then be explored further on the Saturday night. Oh sure. It's always it's great to have a couple of different chances, especially you know, as a guest conductor with an orchestra, there's a little bit of a learning curve. Mm. And, you know, as we get to know each other through the week, uh you do it the first time and you get a little confidence. Once you've done that, that first performance and the second one is always is really quite enjoyable. And I don't, you don't think you've managed to meet John O'Connor face to face yet. You've been in touch by email, but the, the weather played havoc with both of your plans this afternoon. Yes, so I'm looking forward to working with him. Tomorrow we start rehearsing, so really looking forward to that. Well, the very best of luck with it all, Joshua, and lovely to see you again. That's Joshua Gershon conducting an evening of Beethoven with the RTE Concert Orchestra. University Concert Hall Limerick on Friday the 29th, National Concert Hall in Dublin on Saturday the 30th. Uh, the Creatures of Prometheus Overture will be there alongside Symphony Number no. 3, Eroica, and the Piano Concerto Number no. 3 with John O'Connor as soloists there. Orchestras.rte.ie for full details. Set in 1980s punk scene in Cork, The Coming Thing is a long narrative poem from Martina Evans. Imelda is 19, a first-year student at university in the big city, hanging out with her friends Dora, Donnie and Carl, going to parties and gigs. But there's a darker undertow to the fun and the year will end up in a different tone and mood from the way it started. Martina Evans joins me now on the line to, to speak about The Coming Thing. This isn't the first time that we've, we've met Imelda, uh, Martina? No, no. Um, Imelda was the narrator of my first narrative poem, Petrol, which came out in 2012. And um, I think it's a form I've been developing over the years and Imelda is very much part of that, her voice, even though I have I have done other voices and mm. now we can talk openly about men. But um, Imelda... Um, I think she's she's quite an interesting character for me. I she's very doubtful and unsure of herself and I I think that's quite helpful for the subject matter here because um you're talking about Irish students way back in mm. the 80s. Um we we didn't really know much and I think it's when you're looking back over the years um you see them differently. Yeah. And I think it's um for me it was returning to an old story that I wrote many years ago and um, obsessions with um, life and death and 
is life sacred and when should we take life, but also an obsession with form and getting um, getting this narrative. Yeah, and I liked it. In, yeah. in terms of form, it is a long narrative poem. In the in the in the version that I have, there are seventy five fourteen line poems that go to make it up. Although I have read in other situations that there may be eighty in in other versions. But however, it's, I know, yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is is it seventy five or eighty? I think it's seventy five. <laughs> yeah, so do I because that's people, what's in my book. I know. I heard some people saying there were eighty, and then I thought, God, maybe they got it right. Sorry, I sound very <laughs> doubtful. Um, myself, um, I think there were, you know, there's sonnets, but also I saw them as film frames. Yeah, um, and, and almost like little monologues in in some ways. They're like short dramatic monologues each one of them maybe if we hear one yes. of them that will give us a sense and particularly I think in number six obviously early on in the in the set um, we get we get a sense well first of all we get the explanation of the, the title of the poem itself but we get a sense of the yeah. the nature of 1980s Cork and environs Yes um, pre-computers so people don't know much and there's not much way of getting information so I'll um, start with number six how did some people always know what to do like? Dissect a rabbit, cut a plant cross-section for a slide, poach eggs and make shortbread. Silver spoons and confidence from birth, Sedora. Isn't it awful to think there might be no justice? I worried along with Dora. Will the first shall be last? We didn't know. We knew nothing. Just don't add to the population in the name of God. Dora said, and I said I hadn't a notion of it. I could hardly support myself studying the wrong thing. But Justin wouldn't let me do arts. I had to do science. And after that, it was supposed to be computer science because that was the coming thing. But really, he'd prefer I did nursing, which was the steadiest job of all. I'll keep telling you till I'm blue in the face. That's Martina Evans reading one of the sonnets, the 14 line poems that make up her long narrative poem, The Coming Thing. And it's immediately noticeable the end of the very first line. It demands the cork intonation, um, Martina. Imelda clearly speaking in a very strong cork accent. Yes, I mean, it's it's a beautiful accent. It's very musical. Um, and, And my own writing is very much driven by voice. I, I, I really love voice very, very much. Um, James Joyce said, James Joyce's friend, Franz, Frank Budgen, said that um, James Joyce's favourite instrument was the human voice. And mm. that was a man who really loved music. And I feel the same about it. But um, I don't, I think it's very important that you you don't do other people's accents because I think you miss a lot of subtleties in it. So it was, it was a real joy to me to return to the Cork accent. Mm. Um, yeah. And oh. the, the the dedication at the beginning of the book is for Dora and Donny, and we'll have heard the names Dora and Donny mentioned. Uh, I think in the midst of the the piece that you just <laughs> that you just read there. So you know, I have to ask: Are Dora and Donny real, and how real are everybody else, and who, in fact, is Imelda? Um, well, I think Imelda might be an aspect of myself, but she's also fictional. Mm. Um, I think. I mean, it was first of all. Um, the first time I wrote the book, it was the second part of a two book deal that had to be delivered really quickly. And it never, um, I always, it always bothered me. I think like a lot of poets, you know, we want to get everything just right. So it bothered me for years. So when I was able to get the rights back, I, you know, tore it up. But the funny thing about it is I've forgotten a lot because this is a long time ago. And what I remembered in the night uh, when I was writing it in the early 90s was um, I fictionalised 
experiences or experiences that other people told me about in the 90s. So when I came back to this novel, I really didn't know a lot about, you know, some of the fiction mm. seemed like the truth to me. So I then further fictionalised it. Because I think Imelda works for me as a character. She's really good. And her father, Justin, was somebody I kind of created with petrol. And I find him, I find him a really good device as well. Um, as you know, that kind of um, that voice that mm. a lot of us of a certain generation still probably hear in our heads. That, yeah. You know, yeah, Imelda, don't be looking for notice and yeah. Imelda, <laughs> put yourself together. And yeah, Imelda was Imelda was part of that petrol um, story from from that time as well. That the father was uh, yes. very, very important within us. There's also a large political uh, element to the the coming time, the coming thing rather. Maybe you'd read monologue number forty nine, which brings up yeah. a couple of the different political aspects that you discuss further throughout the poems. Right. I mean, I, I think really what I was trying to get across is how, how I think looking back um, on the troubles in the North, um, I'm always struck about how we kept ourselves apart in the South and how we didn't, we kind of, we were quite flippant about it and probably didn't understand it very well. But I mean, these are very young people and mm. they're very concerned with fashion. So... 49. Carl said Bobby Sands was a murderer and I got mad. I had my own troubles. I didn't want to think of them starving themselves into their coffins. And Murph said hunger striking was suicide, the same as Ian Curtis. Will you stop talking about life and death, I said. And Murph said, isn't Dora utilitarian? And I said, my grandfather fought for the freedom of this country and burst out the Long Valley. Carl came after me and said only Egypt went on about the IRA and they were pure cat with their flares and long hair. And I fell in Winthrop Street and cut my lip and he still said I was in Egypt. I saw the blue light of an ambulance coming for me, only it wasn't. I walked down Washington Street licking my salty blood. Carl sang, love will tear us apart. It always cheered him up. And that's Martina Evans reading another one of the uh, 14 line sections that make up her long narrative poem, The Coming Thing, which has just been published by Carcanet Poetry. You you go on from there to discuss and it does become a, a much darker discussion towards the end uh, of the, the long poem itself in and around suicide and abortion. These 19 year olds are quite innocent in, in this world, really, aren't they, Martina? They're very innocent. And I think that's what was really, I really enjoyed going back to it. I really, after years of teaching, I, I, you know, I get slower and slower about with my writing, slower to let it go. Because I feel it's, I, I once worked in x-ray and I feel it's like, you know, developing photographs in a dark room. Slowly the images appear. And I think distance, like for me, leaving Ireland, that distance really helped with writing. But I also think the distance of time. And I think now, even when I was in the 90s, they didn't seem that young to me. But now they're just babies. And I, I think I feel very tender towards all of them. Mm. And um, I suppose you're meant to love your characters. I think I, I love all of them now. And um, yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking. But I suppose every set, you know, every generation that comes up as. probably not prepared for all the challenges that come. Yeah. Well, listen, um, thanks for sharing your thoughts on the poem with us this evening, Martina. That's Martina brilliant. Evans. Thanks, Martina. Martina Evans are joining us from London and Martina's new collection. It's not a collection, sorry. It's a long narrative poem. 
The book is called The Coming Thing and it's published by Carcanet Poetry. And that is our lot for this Wednesday evening. Paula Shields and Leah Murphy Research. Dolly Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Ashton Grufferty was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Keshi. Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.